Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 222 of the Fun with Cars Motorsport Miscellany, a brief rundown of the motorsports we care about. I'm Robin Warner, and I am once again joined by the best photographer in the land, Jamie Price. Wow. Jamie, how's it going? I think you've got the wrong guy. No, 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 no! You, you, you take the pretty pictures, man. You take the prettiest of the pretty. Well, thank you. I'm doing well. Merry, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, because I probably won't talk to you before then. Yes, Merry, Merry, all those things Merry and Happy, all, all those, things. those things. Yep. Yeah, and uh, also, I'm not exactly sure when this podcast will actually be published. So. Merry Christmas and or I hope you had a Merry Christmas. Happy Valentine's Happy New Day. Year. <laughs> and or I hope you had a Happy New Year. And <laughs> Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy Independence yes. Day. Yes. Who knows? There's a lot going on up happening. President's Day. But, you know, we, we're worldwide, man. We don't have to worry about the national holidays only. That's true. There's a lot of stuff going on. Happy Boxing Day yeah, to all happy the Canadians. Boxing Canadians. Day. Yeah. You and I uh, saw each other. Uh, in Canada, yeah, where you told me a bit about the uh, the rowing basin that we were in, uh, <laughs> the Olympic rowing basin that we were in, because I was like, oh, check out this little pond or whatever, and you're like, dude, this is like the Olympic rowing area, and yep. this is where they did this, and so you hit me with some knowledge in Canada, yep, and uh, you also took those pretty pictures we were talking about. How have things been since then? Things have been good. Things have been really busy. Um, I guess I flew straight from there to the 24 hours of Le Mans. Did a couple IMSA races, the six hours of Watkins Glen, and uh, what else did I have after that? There was a couple more F1 races that I went to. And then I finished off my year with Petit Le Mans and the uh, Macau Grand Prix. Oh, uh, Macau, that's a Formula 3 race, right? They have F3, they have motorcycles, they have uh, GT3 cars, they have Chinese, we call them Chinese poop boxes. They're not very pretty, or they don't, and they don't sound good. They're just kind of tin top. Um, but they go as fast as they can around a racetrack. They go as fast as they can, and it's always a disaster. So, <laughs> like, like a beautiful disaster, I'm hoping. Yeah, something like that. But <laughs> okay. it's, it's a really amazing event, though. It's fun. A beautiful and or other kind of disaster. Yeah. All right, that. nice. Well, what were the other Formula One races you went to? So, obviously, Canada, and then... Yep. Um, I did the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, and then I went to straight from there to the Mexican Grand Prix in Mexico City. So you saw uh, Lewis Hamilton clinch. I did. No, it was amazing. He did burnouts, donuts right in front of me, right in the, in the oh, stadium section. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was cool. Um, what was it like to, like, what was the crowd like in that? Because, I mean, there was a lot of, not just it could happen, but a lot of inevitability around mm -hmm. Mexico being the place where he was going to clinch. <clears throat> yep. Well, it was, it was an amazing race, really, because... If you remember at the start, he and Vettel um, had a coming together. Oh, I remember Verstappen kind of somewhere in the mix, and I was I was shooting the start from the rear, so I was basically at the very last turn shooting the rear of the cars um, and the five lights and all that. 
And so when I saw that happen on the TV, I was like, oh man, this just got real interesting. Obviously, he charged back through the field, and what was he like, ninth or ten, eighth or ninth? I guess. I think he ended up finishing eighth. It was enough. Yeah, just enough points. And I was texting a friend in the media center because it's really hard to mathematically know what's going on. Like once once that happens, I'm like, man, this is going to get complicated because then you don't know how many points Seb has and how many points Hamilton has. It gets complicated. So I was texting a friend of mine. Um, who works for racer magazine in the, in the media center. I was like, please tell me what's going on and who's going to win this championship. And, uh, he was like, Hamilton should have it unless something catastrophic happens. And so I was like, all right, there we go. And so I just, I knew where I wanted to be, but the stadium section of Mexico city, the, the baseball stadium is honestly one of my favorite sporting venues, sporting arenas, area of a racetrack anywhere in the world it is so much fun. And the Mexicans, I love, I love the Mexicans and I love their passion for the sport and their passion and their nationalism and how proud they are to have a Grand Prix in Mexico. It is, it's so much fun. Well, it and it's legitimately a cool track. Yep. Uh, they have, you know, Mexican, you know, you get the good tacos in Mexico. They're hard to beat. Uh. Oh, they're so like tacos pastor is probably my favorite thing in the entire world. Yeah, no. When I did that, uh, when I did that Baja pre-run of story, that was May. That was actually that was pretty. It was only a couple weeks before Montreal when we saw each mm-hmm. other. Yeah, and that's that was like you know I went pre-running through the desert, saw all this incredible stuff in Baja. I was like. Dude, man, did you try those tacos? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's a memorable thing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because we also went to a, a hamburger place, and you're like, oh, these guys make great burgers. No, no, they weren't that good. Clearly, the Americans have burgers, but yep. just as clearly, the Mexicans have tacos. They do tacos and beer so well, and it's so cheap. Like, what? I mean, it's like $2, $2 $2.50, maybe $3, and you get two tacos and a and a like Tecate beer, it's just so good. I could do that all day. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Dosecki man. I don't know if that's like lame. No, I'm a big Dosecki's fan, but they it's it's definitely the the premium Mexican brand down there, so we we drink the cheap stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the Mexican and it's also I mean we should say it's a great racetrack too. And just like you mentioned, that stadium section is super cool and the fans truly get into it, and you see it even just the way Sergio Perez responds on the radio. You know, obviously, it means so much to him, and the Mexican fans respond. It's not too dissimilar from the way Felipe Massa is in Brazil. I actually think that it's it's more so because the really? Brazilians are very. I mean, it's they're both Latin countries, so it's very cool. Um, they have that Latin vibe, I guess. Sergio, because I, I work with Force India pretty pretty regularly, I can see, and I know Checo pretty well, and it's just so cool to see how excited he is, and he just spends hours signing autographs, and there's so many people wearing, like, Checo hats and Checo t-shirts and carrying flags and 
they're just so excited about it that it's really, it's amazing to watch. And you, when you see all these people in the, in the grandstands cheering for him, like every single lap that he drives by through the grandstand, it's just insane watching them like cheering and standing ovations. And it just gets so loud in there. And especially when he passes somebody, it's nuts. It's, yeah. it's like oh, totally. somebody, it's like somebody just scored a touchdown. Like it, it's just crazy. You say you know Checo pretty well. Yeah, I mean we're we we he would know me by first name. Oh, okay. So I have a picture. Um, this is a little. I think this has come up in the podcast in years past, probably multiple times. I have a picture of Sergio Perez uh, when he and I raced each other. Really? Yeah, and I was faster than he was, and I make that point every single time this comes up, and it is true. But I was 24 and he was 14. <laughs> so, um, but he was, he raced uh, Skip Barber Midwest and National Championship the year I was racing National Championship. That's really cool. And he has, you know, he had the, um, oh God, uh, the huge uh, Telmex. He had Telmex yep. sponsorship. Still and, does. Yeah, it still does. I, would, I imagine because yeah, uh, that's, that is not a poor man. Carl no. Slim. And uh, no. anyway, um, so I will forward you uh, the picture I have of him. And he's he's leaning in front of his Skip Barber car with all of his uh, sponsorship and everything like that. But he's, you know, he's 14. And you can you can regard as like, yeah, I know this guy, Robin Warner. He raced you. He was faster <laughs> than you in the Skip Barber National Championship. Do you remember him at all? Fake, fake news, Robin. Fake news. <laughs> I was the... I was, ironically enough, I was the magazine guy. So I was, you know, I was the media person there. So wow. you could say that about me if you want to. <laughs> That's great. I I speak the truth, Jamie. Let's uh-huh. be real here. Well, I'll ask I'll ask him about that next time I see him. That's not even true. I am the truth. I <laughs> I just embody truth. What when you see me, you see truth. Ten four. Have we digressed? Or are we still talking about Mexican Grand Prix? <laughs> kind of, sort of Mexican Grand Prix, but digressed. It was kind of. It was a very fishy move that Vettel made on Hamilton, actually, and maybe you saw it after the fact. But yep. you know, Hamilton had Vettel passed, and Vettel, in some, if you wanted to take the conspiracy theory track. It does almost seem like Vettel deliberately turned into Hamilton. Now, yeah. you know, it, I'm not trying to go down that road too deep, but I just want to throw it out there. They did get it. Hamilton didn't end up clinching by a couple of points at that race, um, but the accident actually hurt the floor of Hamilton's car, so mm-hmm. the car was damaged for the whole Grand Prix, so he could yeah. move through the field as well as Vettel could. So. It was Vettel's best chance to hold on to everything. After the race finished and the championship finished, you know, obviously the podium was kind of a side note almost. And, you know, Hamilton was kind of part of that weird kind of like not on an actual podium podium mm-hmm. ceremony. And then he just ran back to the paddock in a, in a random way and uh, was kind of like had to run through a crowd of people and try not to get hurt. Yeah. Where, where were you through that whole process? Um, 
that I mean, so the podium for for Mexico is kind of a disaster. I mean, it's fun, um, but it's kind of like Monza where it's a free for all and the fans invade the track. So you're really trying to not have your gear stolen. So I was basically we're all behind fences uh, at various points around the stadium section. And without going into too much detail, they did things a little differently this year where they only allowed certain photographers to shoot from right in front of where the top three cars plus Hamilton park. So if you weren't on an exclusive list, then you didn't get to shoot from there. So as a team that I work on, we all kind of decided um, where we were going to go and how we were going to shoot it and make the best of, of that situation. I was, if you're, if you think of where they, um, come into the stadium section, I'm on driver's left right there as they come into the stadium section. And there's a little gap where they could pull a car back in if somebody broke down. Um, but we all kind of queue up there and wait to run out into that, that area. Um, and they pull a big truck out and we all climb on top of that and shoot the podium, which is right in front of us between the um, Formula One, like F1 experience hospitality. Did you, do you feel like you captured any, I mean, what do you think you captured from that race? Uh, I, I captured, I captured Hamilton doing donuts, which is what I was really there for um, because it's a rare thing like Formula One cars. And it's one of those things about F1 that I, I kind of wish didn't exist, but I get it. Um, but the engines are so fragile and expensive that doing donuts is not something that the cars, the drivers are really like encouraged or allowed to do. So I was, I, we had all like kind of suspected that if he, if Hamilton won the championship, that he would be doing donuts. And if he was going to do donuts, he was going to do donuts in the stadium section. It just made so much sense for, for that to happen. So we all took a gamble and said, hopefully he'll do this. And as soon as he drove into the stadium section, I saw he like pulled off the track and he had a, um, the union Jack and we were all just like pressed up against this fence, shooting through any hole we could find. And as soon as he spun the car around and, and lit the wheels up, I just started hitting the, hitting the shutter button. <laughs> That's really funny. But I, I got nothing of him getting out of the car though. Like he was, it's so far away. I mean, it's, for those photography nerds, like to shoot that, you'd need a thousand millimeter lens, and you still would be far away. One thousand so. millimeters. Yeah, it's basically a lens that they don't even make. Yeah, you, you, I mean, it'd be a, with. I have my lens. The big one I have is a five hundred millimeter, and you could put a two X converter on it, and it would make it a thousand millimeter. But it it wouldn't. It wasn't worth shooting. Like you could probably you could watch it with your naked eye, but the it's so far away and it's so much, there'd be so much heat haze coming off the tarmac that at that distance, everything would be soft. So, well, I don't, I didn't even shoot it. A thousand millimeters is a meter. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> You know, so you're talking about photography. I, from the engineering point of view, it's like, you need a one meter lens. Jesus. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where, that's where my head goes. Yeah. I don't even, I don't actually know why they, how it works. I'm sure somebody will send me an email or, message me and tell me why they call the lenses that they have what they do. But I actually don't know the answer to why they call a 500 millimeter a 500 millimeter. 
but it's a big lens and it wouldn't have been basically my point is it wouldn't have been worth him shooting getting shooting him getting out of the car i i shot him doing donuts and then ran to shoot the podium and that was pretty much the end of it okay so what about the us gp what was the um highlights for you there i mean i love i love going to austin honestly i'm kind of jaded by the track a little bit because i go so many times a year it it's you know I get a little bored of it because you end up shooting the same thing and it's so big that it's just, it's very challenging, um, to shoot it. And when it's not bright and sunny, it's just not a very nice place to shoot in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's one of the few tracks that I've been to and actually driven. I've, I've been around that place a few times myself. And you couldn't, there's, there's no walls to hit. You, you couldn't hit a wall if you tried. So, oh, I could hit a wall. Uh, well, you, you probably see, well, whoa, whoa, whoa! I I'm, thought you beat Checo Perez. I'm in a, a pro, race Jamie. I you, I'm a pro. Yeah. I know how to hit walls. I I really enjoy Austin. It's it's a fun city. The track has some cool colors, but I go too much, too many times a year. And um, the tower, the elevator to go up the tower is still broken. It's been broken for over a year, so or not working reliably for since last October, I guess, 2016. So it, you can't even really go up in the, in the tower anymore. Um, you can, you just have to walk the stairs, which, you know, with 45 pounds of camera gear on my back and shoulders is not something I'm really interested in doing right now. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I feel that. Um, what did you think of, uh, Michael Buffer and his whole, let's get ready to rumble. That's you're right. I forgot about that. Yeah. I I liked it. I know that a lot of people were very negative about it on and especially those of those people that aren't Americans. You know, I, a lot of my European friends that I think overwhelmingly everybody that works in Formula 1 and saw it in person thought it was really fun and it was cool and it was different. Would I want it to happen every race? No, I don't think that I would. I can see why people were negative about it to watch it on TV because I'm sure it had a really hollow feel to it on TV. And especially if you're not really familiar or ingrained in the American culture and how we like to, you know, we like to pizzazz things. We like to make it a show. You know, people have been talking for a long time about making formula one, a super bowl type experience. And that was as close as it has ever come to being like a super bowl type experience there was there was some things that they could probably do without. I didn't think they they actually needed Will Buxton interviewing everybody as they walked out. And Will is a good friend of mine. He's a really good friend of mine. And I think overwhelmingly everybody was like, we could have done without that because it just kind of slowed the process down. It was kind of awkward. It just didn't really flow. But I really enjoyed seeing the drivers walk out and kind of square up against each other. It made for really cool pictures. And to hear Michael Buffer say, you know, let's get ready to rumble was awesome. Well, and I think, you know, to me, it also depended on uh, the drivers. And, you know, Daniel Ricardo ate it up and it was fantastic. Like for me, he was by far the best. You know, he got into a character of sorts. He always does. He always does. And then you have somebody like Marcus Erickson or Pascal Verline and they like walk out with a straight face and like barely a smile and kind of like lift their finger like 
as a as a wave to the crowd. I mean, I was blown away. Even Kimi showed more emotion than like sixty percent <laughs> of the drivers. <laughs> I was like, I was like, who who have they brought out here? Kimi Mar- Kimi Raikkonen, the benchmark of no emotion. <laughs> yeah, he was he was like he raised his his fist and uh, I don't think he, I think he was carrying his helmet in his arm and he raised his fist up and was like, you know, he he did his like he did more than a lot of the other drivers did. And uh I thought it was really cool. I enjoyed it. The guy that I've been announced uh co-hosting with uh most most uh podcasts, his name's Christopher Roche and he's a Brit. Yep. He was quite nice. He's like, you know, I get it. You know, I thought it was fun and it wasn't perfect. And I think we all agree it wasn't perfect. But it was nice to instill some stereotypical even Americana into the race. Yep. Our opinion, both Chris and I agreed on this. Why not instill some of the local culture into the race more so at every Grand Prix, you know? Yep. And that's something that Mexico does really, really well. They had, because they do it on Day of the Dead or they do it on Day of the Dead uh, weekend, it's really cool because they did a a parade through the stadium section with all the traditional, you know, headdresses and um, costumes. And it's, it is very, they do a great job of, of trying to make everybody feel like this is, this is cool. Like this is really amazing and interesting and and you can kind of get a sense for the culture but i don't know like i feel like people are i mean especially in this political climate these days people are pretty negatively american and i know a lot of people just didn't really enjoy the the experience of of watching all the hype on tv i don't know i enjoyed it though i liked i i approve yeah well and again i mean i it's it's one of those things where there's no like yes he should be at every race doing the exact same thing. No one thinks that, but no. to have a little fun with the local culture, I think is a grand idea. And, you know, for example, in Japan, they should have a massive tea ceremony and everyone has some green tea before the Grand Prix. I'm down. And it's a very, very ornate in beautiful ceramics. Let's do it. In Canada, everyone goes curling and then has some poutine. <laughs> And uh, and then drinks fifteen beers before the race. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's a great idea. Great. I mean, this is F one really does need more. What's the word I'm looking for? It, it needs a little bit more excitement. It needs more personality. More personality, definitely. It's just been sterilized so much by the modern world and health and safety and these enormous tracks that don't have any character and don't you, like. People fell in love with Formula One in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and then they've kind of, like, tolerated it through the 2000s and and into, like, the, you know, the modern turbo era, but it's lost, I, I really honestly believe that it's lost its soul, and... I would love to see more personality brought back to the sport, more more personalities in the sport. I mean, they've really driven out most of the personalities in the sport for one reason or another. Um, And there's very few left. And all the drivers are kind of cookie cutter, you know, PR machines. And I'm not a massive Lewis Hamilton fan, but he's got personality. I love Daniel Ricciardo. He's got personality oozing out of his pores. Um... You know, there's a lot of people that aren't big fans of Sebastian Vettel, but the guy also has personality. 
you know, but there's a lot of the drivers that don't. And a, and a lot of the team owners don't have a lot of personality. It's, it's just, it needs more of that like fire. And I think Liberty media has done a good job of, of trying to find some of that, but in a new and different way. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit because I found this super fascinating. According to Wikipedia, Michael Buffer, he was in the Vietnam War. He served uh, when he was uh, 20 until the age of 23. And he held various jobs, including a car salesman, then began a modeling career at the age of 32 before becoming a ring announcer at 38. So, wow. uh, Michael Buffer, he's in his seventies. He he's according to this, he's 73 and he didn't start doing what he's doing now until he was, you know, my age and he was a model for that. I just, I just love that. Wow. That's cool. You know, who the other personality that I, I thought was just amazing to have at the U S Grand Prix was Usain Bolt. Oh yeah. No, that was great. That was fantastic. He's a legend. He's so cool and just so chilled out and he's so Jamaican and I loved it. It was so much fun to have him on the podium and he and, and Lewis doing the lightning bolt. It was awesome. Well, that's, that's actually what I was going to mention was I really enjoyed how much Lewis and Usain kind of got on with each other and how Lewis poured champagne on him and the whole deal. Yeah. I thought that was a nice, just like you're talking about, that was a nice moment of personalities coming out and people just being themselves. Yep. I agree. So what did you, what, what were the things that stood out in 2017 when you weren't uh, following the races, when you were just a fan like anyone else? Um, I thought the racing was pretty good. I mean, you know, we could talk for an entire episode about Ferrari and what's going on there. I think we're being robbed of, of great races by bad stewarding and we're being robbed of great races by, by an Italian team who paints their cars red because, and they can't, they cannot get their crap together. They just can't do it. And, um, again, Will Buxton wrote an amazing article about the the culture of bullying inside that team. And it's it's unbelievable. And it's so true. And I know there's a lot of Ferrari fans out there. I mean, deep down, I'm a, I'm a Ferrari fan. It's what being a Michael Schumacher fan was what made me fall in love with the sport. But working around Ferrari and and the the mechanics these days they're, they're a nightmare. They're a complete nightmare for no, for absolutely no reason. They just have, they all act the same way. And even Vettel and Kimi have kind of become that they've become like petulant school children when they don't get their way. And we saw it come out twice with Vettel this year with the first time in Baku. And then the second time in Mexico where, you know, the first time in Baku, that, that was undeniably he turned into Hamilton and for what, like it, he would have been in it for a championship if he hadn't done that. And then, I mean, he's just, he's finding ways to ruin his own races and his own championships in ways like I've never seen before. And it's amazing to watch Ferrari self-destruct and who knows what, what will happen next year, but they're a nightmare to work around and they I'm, I'm personally like 
I, you know me, I'm not a massive Hamilton fan, but the right guy won the championship this year. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And yes, it is it is confirmed. You were not a massive Hamilton fan. As our co-host Christopher Roche, being a massive Hamilton fan, will attest. The Will Buxton article you're mentioning, uh, where, do you know, was it, when did it come out? Because I found one, I didn't read it myself, but I found one and it's named middle of October. It's called Sympathy for the Devil. Yep, that's it. That's the one. Okay, yeah. So that's there will it. be, we'll have a link to this article in the show notes if anyone wants to see it. And since you mentioned Will Buxton, uh, we're going to do uh, a little bit more of uh, personal housekeeping on the podcast. You mentioned that you and him are good friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, please do share that I greatly enjoyed his work as a pit commentator uh, for NBC Sports. I think he brings excellent insights. He seems like a, a genuinely good guy. I liked watching his, um, what do they call it, Beyond the Grid? or yep. And uh, I always thought highly of the work Will Buxton did. So please do uh, send along my... Um, three cheers to his work i definitely will and and he's he's a a hell of a pit lane reporter and a hell of a journalist and i think his opinion articles i mean he's written a few that have been very punchy and very unpopular as far as like the content that he's written because he really he doesn't mince his words and there's a lot of people i mean i can just imagine the ferrari fans listening to this thinking like that I'm delusional and that Buxton's delusional, but I'm telling you everything in Buxton's article is, is 100% true. And it's, I've seen all of it with my own eyes and everybody in the paddock has, and there's, they don't have a lot of friends in the paddock and they just, they just continue to undermine themselves in the sport for no damn good reason. And Buxton writes some some great words and and articles about the sport, so I will definitely pass that on. Uh, so what you're saying, if I'm hearing correctly, is that Will Buxton is also a huge fan of mine. He loves my work and he reads he all does. my stuff. Oh man, that's it. that's I'm so humble. I'm so humble. <laughs> yeah, no, it's he's he's a good guy. Yeah, no. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, do send it along. And I, yeah, he's the type of person that. He's built the kind of rapport that I would believe – I would tend to believe what he has to say because he's built that kind of reputation to not BS people but to give them the real, the real scoop. He wrote, a, he wrote an article a couple of years ago about Jean Todd after – I guess it was when – it was when he would – how many terms has he been F1 FIA president? Is it now going on to three or is it two? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think it might be three, but only because he's he's running completely unopposed. And I think it was after his first term when he was maybe like running for his second one. And Buxton wrote an article about Jean Tot and how he's like captaining this this ship and just aiming it straight for you know the rocks and had like all very fair points and basically just just embarrassed Jean Todd as a as a leader and. John Todd like called him and said, "Come down to my office. We need to talk." <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, like I'm. I don't really honestly remember the rest of the story and what what happened, but basically, Will stood his ground and said, "You know, I stand by everything I wrote. Prove me wrong if you feel differently." Yeah. Well, what I remember about John Todd is that 
when he first applied to be president of the FAA, he was he was opposed by Ari Vatanen, yep. the rally driver. And Ari yep. is actually famous for, uh, well, famous in the United States at least for his Pikes Peak hill climb yep. in a Group B car in yep. the 80s. And it was it was the coolest thing in the world because he's driving, he's doing these massive power slides, he's doing this great stuff, and then he's using one hand to block the sun out of his eyes as he's doing it. And uh, I was like, well, that's pretty dope. Yeah, let's make him president. But uh, what a legend. But Jean Todd, of course, has a name that uh, carried weight with his time in Ferrari and all that. So, uh, yep. yeah. And it's it's interesting how that whole hierarchy thing works because, you know, Bernie Ecclestone had just an absolute iron fist control of his of his Formula One. And, you know, it was very much his. Uh, and a lot of people are going, man, this is really just getting uh, out of control. And now he's out. It's Liberty Media and John Todd and Ross Braun's uh, an important. He's like, uh, you know, a director of competition or something like that. And there's a lot of buzz of people saying, oh, well, now Formula One's coming apart. And I wonder, is it really coming apart or is it just changing and people don't like change? And that's what opinions are coming out. So anyway, okay, uh, you're you're happy that Lewis Hamilton won, given all the circumstances that went down. I just don't think Ferrari deserved to win this year. Maybe next year, maybe maybe in future years, but I don't think this year they deserve to win. What about the rules change? What about the fact that the cars were faster and all the consequences that came from that? I'm a big fan of the new cars. Like I'm actually sitting here, I just I just have some like old pictures up right now. I don't really like the way that the pre-2017 cars look. The the new turbo cars and even the cars you know from the end of the V8 era, they just don't they didn't they don't look that good. The wings small and tall. The the new cars from especially from the side and from behind look really mean and really aggressive and aesthetically they look really good from the front they i just don't like the new formula one like i i like f1 cars to have like more a little bit higher noses um or like just not have that big bulbous thing on the front of all the cars it's just horrendous i'm not i'm not a massive fan of what they did with the what did they call it? The clothes hanger on the back of the oh yeah yeah the shark fin. The shark fin to me doesn't look terrible, but the clothes hanger just made the cars look uh, atrocious, and I'm just not a fan of that. But overall, I thought it was I thought it was good. Like I, you know, the racing when there's racing, it, it's genuine racing, and and I think that the the pre 2017 cars when downforce wasn't quite as high there was almost too much passing like you know when i want when i see a, a driver going to pass somebody i want it to actually mean something like we we all look back and idolize that era of formula one where when you had fernando alonso and michael schumacher battling it out or kimi raikkonen diving for a last lap pass at suzuka those those are the the overtakes that stick out in my mind and not the hundred per race at China 
like for the last three years. When a driver goes to overtake somebody, I want it to mean something. I want it to be a ballsy pass that, you know, took real gumption to make it happen. And I think that the cars prior to 2017 were a little too easy to pass each other. It just... I know the passing numbers have dropped dramatically in 2017. I saw a chart the other day and like the difference between 2016 and 2017 was, was dramatic. But I think the passing we did get was real racing. Like what, what Daniel Ricciardo did in, in Baku was just, was insane. Like, and that's the kind of stuff that you're going to, you're going to remember for a long time and not as much the, the passing from like 2014 to 2016, where it's kind of like, well, I don't even really remember who passed who and when and why. And it just wasn't that impressive because it was so, it just, they just made it look so easy. You know, that's really fascinating because I agree with everything you said, except for the fact that the cars have become so hard to pass one another because there's so much performance loss with disturbed air because they've become so aero sensitive, so downforce sensitive. Mm-hmm. To me, you're just you're you're an absolute hero if you pull off a pass. And Daniel Ricardo is a fantastic example of that. But it's so hard to pull off a pass that it's harder and harder to find a hero these days. Yep. I don't dismiss having I want the passes to be real and authentic and real racing, but I also don't want it to be I don't want it to be something that's so difficult that it takes risk to even attempt it. And I want the cars to naturally suit themselves to being able to race close to each other. And to me that will enliven real racing more than anything else if the cars can be close to one another and not lose too much performance. Now, all that said, the cars absolutely look much, much better than they did before 2017. We're moving in the right direction. And then next year we're moving, you know, we went two steps forward and we're about to go 10 steps backward. Would you by any chance be referring to the halo? I would be. Yes. Yeah. That that's a whole different, I mean, I've had a conversation, a real brief one with Christopher Roche. We didn't really get a chance to get into it, but he's a little bit more pro but, you know, the last podcast was with Engineering Explained, Jason Fenske, and he and I pretty much agreed that those things, they, they're not the right compromise. No. I would be much more in favor of a windshield. And I, this, this is something where I place the blame squarely on Jean Todd for not making this, Jean Todd being the leader of the FIA. So, you know, if the FIA makes a decision on, on something, he's ultimately the person that signs off on it. And they did one test over one lap in one practice session of the windshield with one driver. That is not, that is not a a scientific test. That is not like doing an average to see what anybody else thought or even giving it to the world champion or giving it to anybody. They gave it to one driver who felt slightly nauseous after one lap and they scrapped the idea entirely. Yeah, because that they is, didn't want it in pathetic. the first place. It is yeah. completely pathetic. And that I blame squarely on the FIA's shoulders and therefore squarely on Jean Todd. The halo is atrocious. It will not save lives because there's still going to be stuff that goes through the halo. And and you you make the cars look truly disgusting 
I I honestly have very little interest in shooting Formula One next year simply because of how horrendous the cars are going to look. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And the point you made uh, that I think is most important and really needs to be driven home is that that halo is not necessarily going to protect everyone from every head injury. Um, if you look at Felipe Massa's accident in 2009 where a heavy spring struck him in the head or in IndyCar... Justin Wilson's accident, it was similar, where a heavy object, I don't know if it was a spring or not. No, it was an, enti- it was an entire wing is what okay. went through Justin's car. The halo would not necessarily protect the driver in those circumstances. And I've heard from quite from a few reliable sources that the testing they've done, the halo wouldn't save Jules Bianchi either. Wow. Oh, that's the most pertinent one yet because that's what was the original driver of all this. Right. And, and so like, I've had several conversations about this with, with a few people and essentially what it boils down to and why the FIA is shoving this, this, you know, flip flop down everybody's necks here is that the Bianchi family, and I'm not blaming them, but basically if somebody they're they're suing the FIA to do more is what's happening. And they're saying that, that Jules's accident was a preventable incident, which it was, but they're now saying that if, if you have a, a device that would work 60% of the time, you can't not put it on the cars and then justify the drivers getting into the cars. But on the flip side, Jules Bianchi's crash was caused by Jules Bianchi and not anyone else. His accident, the pro, like the what killed him was was bad track marshaling and having a a tractor somewhere that it shouldn't have been while cars were still going around the track, but ultimately he was speeding under yellow flags. That is an undeniable statement. So he lost control of his car and the rest is history, but now we have to live with this, quote, life-saving device that will protect the driver's heads from from future accidents, but it will not protect everybody. So what happens when you have another accident? What you said is an incredibly important point to make, and it's ultimately reactionary, and that's what we try to avoid. You want to be proactive, ultimately. But the reactionary move that was correct was the virtual safety car. Right. Where you said, okay, when there's a yellow, let's go virtual safety car until we can fully manage this. And that would have, that absolutely would have kept Jules Bianchi from having the accident he had. Right. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to speed to catch up to the back of the field. He was going pretty much full speed as fast as you can go in the conditions when he lost control. It's so sad. And the guys is super talented, but every, like the best drivers in the world, doesn't matter who it is, whether it was Michael Schumacher, Mika Hakkinen, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, every single one of them have made mistakes. And, and unfortunately for Jules, it cost him his life. But I've talked to a few IndyCar drivers and we haven't seen the IndyCar solution for this, but I've heard that IndyCar is not going to run it on on the road courses they will run something 
similar, not this year, but next year on the oval courses, but it will be a shield, not a halo. Since you bring it up, I think IndyCar is doing a lot of good things. Yep. And I it'll be interesting to see if they can capitalize on it and really get momentum and fan base going. But, you know, they're working on also a much better looking package for 2018 uh, downforce package that's also lower downforce. And not only is it less downforce overall, the percentage of downforce that you get from the floor from actually sucking the car down increased dramatically and what you're getting from the wings decreased dramatically. And what that means is they're much less uh, downforce aero sensitive than they were in 2016. That was one thing I was going to say is that F1, something that they need to to do instead of having like what you were saying about the passing and, but the cars to make the cars look better, they kind of need more arrow. That's why the cars look better this year is because they have ridiculous amounts of arrow. But ground ground effect would basically be the solution to that because it doesn't it doesn't disturb the air behind the car. It sucks the car to the floor, and and you keep that or active suspension. Like I mean, everybody's the cars are already stupidly complicated. Why not make them a little more stupidly complicated? Because we're not going backward in technology. <laughs> I like that. It's like we're already at stupid. Just keep it coming. Yeah, like they're they're not changing it, and that's and if it makes the racing better, I, I don't care. Like, I mean, the cars are already breaking down for ridiculous reasons. The the things are already so expensive that they're unmanageable. You know, what's another two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or a? I don't know. Like, there's there's a couple of different things that they could do, but we digress again. I'm not a fan of the Halo. I think it's going to really change the sports DNA and I know that there's a lot of people out there that are going to disagree with me but I do know next year I'm not interested in watching the sport because I am a visually driven person and this is not the sport that I fell in love with and I already think that MotoGP is a better product and a better package and no one is making any rider or driver get in or in a car or on a bike this is what they do for a living. They understand the risks. It's always going to be dangerous. I'm full, fully on board with MotoGP because it's just better anyway. Wow. There it is. Your bold claim. So, shifting gears a little bit, you were also at the 2017 Le Mans. I was. You were there with Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what Toyota went through, I mean, that was... If that was a movie script, it would be a comedy. Yeah, it, it, there was it. It wasn't practical that the things that happened would happen, and yet in real life, that's how it can go. I mean, the World Endurance Championship future is in a weird place too. So before we before we wrap up, we should talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I'm Toyota. I, I'm very proud and humbled by the fact that I've been asked to join their team photographer and the team to work like as a member of the team for the last two years at the 24 hours of Le Mans. It, they're an amazing organization. It is there. It is truly my favorite racing team on the face of the planet. And everybody is so nice. They're so professional. The car is incredible. It sounds good. It looks good. The racing is good, but again, 
the cars are so complicated that they're, I mean, this, this year, it, it, the entire thing was laughable because every, like even the car that won the race sat in the garage for two and a half hours. That does not happen ever at the 24 hours of Le Mans. And it was only, they only won the race because everyone else pretty much didn't. Like the, the, the Toyota number eight, that was the only car that survived of the three. So they had three cars, seven, eight, nine, the seven car broke the clutch because of a completely freak thing with a driver dressed in an orange fire suit, waving at Kamui Kobayashi and Kamui, like your spirit animal, my spirit animal. He engaged the clutch when it wasn't meant to be. And it basically fried the clutch and, and it then like you lose gears. So if they had, and if he'd been able to get it back to the, to the pit lane, which he wasn't that far away, it would have been a 35 minute change. I've personally watched them then change the gearbox in the back of one of the cars in less time. So he would have won the, they would have won the race had that happened. And then the number nine was involved with in a, in a crazy crash with an LMP two car and an amateur driver that wasn't paying attention. And the car didn't, didn't get back around to the pit lane. Again, it would have been a pretty easy fix had it, had it gotten back around, but it didn't. And the number eight car sat in the garage for almost four hours, I think. And it finished third. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, I mean, that is a, that's a fantastic uh, data point right there. Four hours in the garage, third overall. Yeah, it, I mean, I love I love the LMP1 cars. They're they're sexy. They're beautiful. The racing is good. They are so fast. Like when you're standing on the Molson straight, it it is it will take your breath away watching them race by. It it is like nothing else I've ever seen on this planet when it comes to racing and it is such a special race and I'm a big fan of the LMP1 category and I'm glad it's not dead. I know it's going to change a lot, but it's, um, it's really, they're very cool cars. 2018. Yeah. You are not in a super positive place about formula one. What, what is formula one going to have to do to make you fall in love all over again? I, I really don't know the answer to that. And, and to be honest, like, I think there's, again, there's going to be a lot of people that say, you know, my opinion doesn't matter. There's going to be people out there that, that share my opinion, but I think, I think the large majority will still continue to watch races, but I just don't see, I don't see formula one as being the product that it, that it thinks it is. And, you know, the fans think that it is because we all, we all look at it with rose colored glasses and, and think that you know, we're still in the nineties or the eighties and this is, this is formula one and it's loud and aggressive and the drivers are throwing punches at each other in the garages. Like that's kind of when, and you're, and they're going to cool tracks that are a little bit dangerous. I it's lost a lot of that for me. And so I think they need to shorten the calendar not make it longer so that we, when they race, we appreciate those races. It doesn't need to be every weekend. It dilutes the, it dilutes the product. In my opinion, having 21, 22, 23 races, which is what they're aiming for. Well, the, yeah, the goal, the ultimate goal is 25. 
Right. And the, the mechanics and the media and NASCAR is a really, really, really good example of why not to do that because their NASCAR goes to 36. Is it 36 weekends a year or something like that? I think I thought it was 38, it, whatever it is. It's in the high thirties. It's past 35 and nobody watches the races because it's, it's too much. Like, well, not only no. Okay. So you're right. It is 36 races. Um, but not only is it 36 races, but some of those races are four hours long. Yeah, it, it's it's too much. So when you have a sport, you have a good sport. NASCAR has good racing. It has it has characters. It has the color. It has the noise. It has everything that theoretically a motorsport event should want. But their biggest problem is that they have too many races, and and F one needs to be shrinking the calendar, not growing it. And and by doing that, they would be able to charge what Bernie wanted to charge instead of charging like, you know, instead of going to to twenty one races a year and charging, I don't know whatever it is, twenty million dollars a race, go to fifteen races a year and charge them twenty five million dollars a race, and you'll make it up. They'll make that difference up, and the t- the places that we go will be climbing over each other to to be on the Formula One calendar, and it should only be the best places, the places that pay, and the places that promote the best racing. We can drop half of the, the races off the calendar just because they're sterile and boring, and they need to be shortening the calendar because the drivers are already to the point where they're just over it by the time they get to November. They're over it. And I was, like, every year... I mean, I'm sure it does the same with everybody, but you, somebody will be like on this day in, you know, 1995, somebody won, whoever, Mika Hakkinen won the championship. And you're like, holy crap, they were in Brazil in September in 1995. And that was the last race of the season or, you know, Felipe Massa and, and Lewis Hamilton had their epic, like, and Kimi Raikkonen and Fernando Alonso had their epic battle to the finish of the last lap of the last race in the rain. And it was like the second weekend in October. And now we're going to Thanksgiving weekend in November and starting a month earlier. Yeah, I mean, and truth, I mean, literally after after Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, so the it's it's really this is free business advice for anybody that's watching Formula One. But I'm not I'm not interested in watching more races of the same crappy racing quality. I'm interested in watching less races of better quality. And I pretty I would be willing to stand here and say that I think a lot of people would agree with me that there's probably five or six races on the calendar that you know, you see that that one's the next one. You're like, great, I'll, I'll TiVo and catch the highlights. But I'm not going to get up at 3 a.m. to watch this, like, another Lewis Hamilton snooze fest. That's Jamie Price, truth over power. Yeah. You just heard it. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I, I think the sports, I mean, it's it's doing good things, and then it just, like, takes a couple steps backward, and and then you're right back at square one. Well, one good thing it's doing is having you show up to take pictures, at least on some events, and those are the highlights for me. Thank you so much for uh, joining me for a conversation, Jamie. You bet. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get your podcast. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. 
And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.